0: Hello, podcast listeners. This is Rob again, and I'd like to ask you for a favor. As I often say, our mission here at Amplify Process Safety is to save lives by helping companies improve their process safety programs. However, we can only meet our mission by working with more companies, and that's where you come in. If your company needs a PSM audit, or perhaps needs help with a process hazard analysis, or maybe you don't know how to submit an RMP plan to EPA, let us know. These are all things that we can help with. Identify process safety. We are experts in all aspects of PSM and RP regulations, including PHAs, mechanical integrity, management of change, and we also have lots of useful knowledge related to NFPA requirements, combustible dust, et cetera. So if you or someone at your company could use our help or just wants to talk about some things related to process safety, please. Don't hesitate to reach out Uh, whenever you want to. You can reach me on my direct line, 207-229-0862. And as I said, if you know of anyone who can use our services, please let us know. Till next time, be safe out there.
1: Welcome to Amplify Your Process Safety the podcast that provides the experience and expertise you need when it comes to process safety and risk management. Our hands-on approach will give you the insight needed, whether you're new to industry or process safety, in a role where you interact with aspects of process safety, or an experienced process safety professional. Join us in our mission to protect people, the companies they work for, and the communities where they operate by making process safety knowledge available to all.
2: Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Amplify Your Process Safety Podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Molly, and we're going to be discussing another CSB final investigation report. This was issued in June of 2023 about an incident at the Watson Grinding and Manufacturing Company facility in Houston, Texas. Now, the incident occurred on January 24th of 2020, but we are covering it now because of the report and the incident unfortunately did kill two employees and a nearby resident, and it injured two additional employees. So let's get into it. What's some background information, Molly, that would be good to know about this Watson Grinding and manufacturing company?
3: Yeah, thanks, Joe. Watson Grinding was founded in 1960 as a small specialty grinding shop. They later expanded to include a full-scale machine shop and specialty thermal spray coatings. One of their special coatings was a high-velocity oxygen fuel coating. The acronym is HVOF, which is a thermal spray process in which fuel and oxygen are mixed together, fed into a combustion chamber and ignited, and then the gas is ejected through a nozzle at high speeds. It's used to apply carbides and metal or alloy coatings. To provide corrosion protection and wear resistance in specific applications. So essentially, they were burning this fuel and then using that as a coating uh, application. They also had robotic thermal spray facilities on site and an on site metallurgical lab to apply coatings to extend the service life of metal parts used in highly corrosive environments. They serviced industries as far ranging as chemicals, mining. Uh, offshore oil production hydraulic fracturing oil refining power generation pulp and paper and aerospace so they serviced a lot of different clientele at the time of the incident the company employed about 130 people as some additional background prior to this incident in 2020 they had another relatively similar incident that happened at their facility On October 31st, 2008, they had a propylene leak, as they did this time, in a coatings booth, and it resulted in a fire and explosion. At that time, it injured two employees and significantly damaged the coatings building. As a result of that incident, they built a new building in 2009. OSHA investigated that incident at the time and issued four citations. Two were deleted during settlement, but one of the final citations was for violation of the General Duty Clause, or GDC. The citation involved a welding hose and conducting joints that were not inspected for signs of deterioration, leaks, and wear. Uh, So talk about a near miss. (laughs) Yes, um, that was not so much a near miss, but an an incident that was eerily similar to what we'll go over happened uh, back in 2020. So they were they should have been very familiar with the hazards and the potential impacts of this operation. Further, the facility was not regulated by either PSM, the OSHA PSM standard, or EPA's risk management plan, RMP. This is due to a couple of factors. One, the amount of propylene stored at the facility was less than the threshold quantity of 10,000 pounds. And also, they fit within an exemption for fuel in these standards because they were only using the propylene to fuel that burner in the coating booth. So, just like a lot of other facilities that are only using these flammables for fuel source, they were not covered because of that. Just a little bit about propylene, which is the flammable material that they were handling. It is a flammable colorless gas. That's typically transported in liquefied form by pressurizing it. Watson Grinding stored it on site in a 2,000 gallon bulk tank capable of holding 8,600 pounds. So that's how they stayed well under that 10,000 pound threshold quantity. So, with that background, Joe, why don't you talk a little bit about what happened in this most recent incident there back in 2020?
2: Sure. So, in essence, A hose came loose inside one of the coating booths in their building, and this happened overnight, and it just slowly released all of this flammable propylene vapor inside the building. And again, it was unoccupied. They were not operating this around the clock, so this did happen when no one was there. However, employees arrived really early the following morning, and we'll get into the timeline and kind of what they were doing there. But they ended up entering the building, and one of them turned on the lights, and an ignition happened with the flammable vapors, and there was a resulting explosion. And as we mentioned before, it did unfortunately kill three people two of them being employees, one being a nearby neighbor who later died of their injuries that they sustained while their house was damaged. Um, and then it did end to other employees. So pretty large explosion Mm -hmm. uh, due to the proximity of other structures, because this was not kind of like out on its own on a piece of land, um, it just damaged hundreds of nearby homes and businesses. The report says over 450 structures, so really significant. The report also has some screenshots of nearby security cameras at people's homes and businesses that capture how large the explosion was. So really significant actually so significant in fact that in the aftermath the houston city council actually adopted an ordinance where they tightened regulations on how close a business storing hazardous material could be to other facilities while it's in the city limits for example they say that they restricted facilities within a thousand feet that included like public parks community centers schools libraries churches daycares, all of this makes really good sense. There's a longer list, mm-hmm. but you right. understand the gist here. So, Yeah, it's they pretty also, significant
3: given that the, you know, the city of Houston that works with so many industrial facilities handling highly hazardous materials went to this extent of uh, adopting a new ordinance in response to this particular incident.
2: Right. And I think it's fair. I mean, if you live or work near something hazardous, you shouldn't, you know, be worried about offsite consequences. And Mm -hmm. so you can, you either need to make sure they're following a program to really decrease that risk, or, you know, it should just not be allowed for you to be that close to them so that you can't be impacted. So that is something that was a result of this incident. Additionally, as far as the company was concerned, Watson Grinding, they did file for bankruptcy almost immediately, February 6th of 2020, and they are no longer in business. Mm -hmm. So,
3: lots of consequences. Very unfortunate incident.
2: Now, they did have some precautions in place, so we're going to walk you through those, and then there are just a lot of intricacies that we'll discuss (laughs) about why those didn't really end up preventing this. So, what kind of precautions did they have in place?
3: So as we mentioned, back in 2008, they had a very similar incident that required rebuilding this coating's building because it was so heavily damaged from that incident in 2008. And in the process of rebuilding that booth, they implemented a lot of safety precautions we'll go through some of these and they actually sounded like they would clearly address the root causes of the problem back in 2008 they had manual and remote actuated shutoff valves installed on their bulk storage tank for the propylene and also manual and automated shutoff valves in each of the coating booths. They implemented, after the 2008 incident, a practice to isolate the bulk storage tank at the end of each workday. As we said, they're not 24-7 operations, so when they would shut down for the day, they implemented a process to isolate that bulk storage At the beginning of each day, they implemented a procedure for the workers to check for leaks within their coating booth, including a visual inspection and also using a soap water solution sprayed on all of the fittings to look for bubbles. It's a very common methodology for looking for gas leaks. Uh, Soap solution, if there is anything leaking, will bubble up and it's very obvious. All the employees were trained to report any odor of propylene. They didn't have a specific odorant like you might find in the natural gas used in your homes, such as a Mercaptan or something like that, but the propylene did have a distinct odor. And so they set up a system to train the employees that worked in the coatings building to recognize that scent and report leaks. There were also manual isolation valves at the storage tank in addition to the automated ones. They put in emergency stop buttons at all of the exit doors for the coatings building, which if somebody pushed that emergency stop button, it would close the automated shutoff valve at the bulk tank. So they did a lot for isolation. They had some other engineering controls as well. Why don't you go into some of those, Joe?
2: Sure. So additionally, they had a large exhaust fan, which was just operated continuously while they were operating these coating booths, just to remove process gas and provide additional ventilation. Six of the eight coating booths were actually equipped with wall mounted gas detectors, and they triggered several actions when the level of flammable gas or oxygen hit a specific limit. So these included they activated an alarm in the PLC, they started up the booth's exhaust fan, they closed the remote remote shutoff valve inside the coating booth, and they closed the remote shutoff valve at the bulk storage tank. And the alarm was audible and visual, and the audible alarm directed the employees to evacuate. It went between a siren and the instruction to evacuate. So Mm -hmm. pretty decent setup. And then several booths also included a sensor to detect if a flame was present on the spray gun. And if there was no flame for a specified period of time, meaning that the booth really wasn't in use, then the remote shutoff valve for that booth would automatically be closed. So a pretty robust system there. And the control system also required each booth's double access doors, because each booth was closed by doors, to be closed in order for the spray system to operate, just to prevent any leaking into the common area of the coating buildings.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, this was a a pretty well-designed, well-engineered system after that incident in 2008. And for those of you that are familiar with a process hazard analysis or PHA, those would count as multiple layers of protection for mitigating or preventing this scenario from progressing to an explosion. So, They seem to have their act together after that 2008 incident with this engineered system. So, what happened? Well, as is not totally uncommon, these well engineered safeguards were not functioning as intended. So first off, the practice of isolating that bulk storage tank at the end of each workday was inconsistent. They didn't have a written policy for that, and so people started to get complacent. The supervisor got to the point where they would generally only close that manual isolation valve if they weren't planning to be in operation for like at least 24 hours if, for instance, they were shutting down for an entire weekend. He didn't necessarily close it at the end of every workday because they would be starting up again in, you know, six or eight hours and it would take too long and add to the morning startup routine. And on this particular day of the incident, he had not closed that isolation valve on the bulk tank before he left for the day.
2: And I think something interesting about that, since you mentioned that many of these safeguards could be credited in PHAs, a good point there is that if you're going to take credit for it in a PHA, it has to not only exist, but it has to have some sort of well-defined structure to mm-hmm. ensure that it's actually happening so in this case you know it'd be like a checklist or a double exactly. sign off checklist for even more certainty uh, that it had been done mm-hmm. and without that like you said you know they went from doing it every day to oh only certain occasions and it's easy to see how over time you know this safeguard was no longer protecting them at right. all so right I not think a effective good point, at all yeah good point mm-hmm. to make
3: yeah. Also, at the time of the incident, those automated gas detection alarms that you mentioned were installed in most of their coding booths weren't functional. So they had all of these interlocks tied to those sensors that would close isolation valves and trigger alarms and the ventilation and so forth. Unfortunately, those sensors weren't connected up to the PLC to take all of those actions that were intended. Additionally, contractors and other folks working on that system on several occasions mentioned to company management that these gas sensors were not functional, they were not connected into the PLC, these interlocks were not going to be effective. Reports were noted from 2013, 2016, 2019, and then again just two weeks prior to the incident. And unfortunately, the company did not take effective action once they received those reports, which basically rendered a lot of their safeguards ineffective. As we talked about in PHAs, if you're going to take credit for a safeguard, it needs to be functional and robust. The other thing that comes into play with LOPA or layers of protection analysis is the notion of independence. So in this case, they had the alarm, the ventilation system, and the auto shutoff of those isolation valves all triggered from a single gas detection alarm. And having that all go to a single sensor in each booth meant that those different safeguards were not all independent. And in this case, the problem with the sensors wiped out what might've been several layers of protection for them. Right, right, good point.
2: And then additionally, poor training and communication definitely contributed to the incident. So as we mentioned before, there were a A couple employees on site very early, I believe right before 4 a.m. They were using the company's on-site gym, so no operations were taking place at the time. But they did smell a gas leak, and they went to investigate it, and they neared the building, and they definitely smelled it. They could hear a hissing sound that confirmed that there was a leak. They didn't evacuate, though. They returned to the gym, and they continued their workout a little bit later the operators were notified via text to let them know about the leak and to, you know, not go ahead Mm -hmm. with startup. But like I mentioned before, no evacuation happened and not really a very robust communication. And they certainly didn't prevent another employee from showing up to work and entering the building, which ultimately is what triggered the explosion when he turned on the lights. So very unfortunate. Yeah. So, you know, poor training on what to do with a leak and then poor communication when a leak was identified because they really should have evacuated completely and, and not even attempted to to get on site. So very unfortunate, like you mentioned. Additionally, Huge contributor as well is the hoses that were used in the coating booths. They were not factory crimped. They were hand crimped by the operators. And so the hose in the booth that ultimately was found to be the source of the leak was Mm -hmm. found to be not properly crimped. And that definitely led to the release Um, in addition to all these other factors. Yeah, the the operators
3: weren't trained to handle those hoses. There weren't written procedures, as we talked about for the isolation. And so they were expecting people to do activities that they weren't properly trained for and that contributed to the problem. Exactly.
2: Now, as we mentioned before, this particular site, because of the amount of propylene on site, did not fall under PSM or RMP. But as we'll get into a little bit further, that doesn't mean that they had a full pass on having uh, no process safety kind of programs mm-hmm. in place. So we're just going to walk through now what elements of a PSM program would have helped because right. in order to kind of comply with the general duty clause, it is kind of like PSM light. There's a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of similarities there. So we're going to kind of walk you through each of the elements that would have likely contributed to preventing an accident like this. So Molly, what's the first yeah. one?
3: Yeah. The first element in the PSM program is employee participation, and so we think that that would have helped quite a bit with regard to communication and awareness of the hazards and understanding what to look for in terms of leaks. This had a characteristic odor. One of the employees working at the gym recognized it. The other one was not assigned to work in the Codings Building and wasn't familiar with what to expect or what to do. Additionally, that awareness training that comes with the whole employee participation element should have helped make people aware of what the expected responses are, that there should have been plans to call for an evacuation or notify emergency response personnel and keep people away. So that's the first starting point is to make sure that all of your employees are aware of the hazards and understand their duty to help provide a safe workplace.
2: Right and then additionally the process safety information element of PSM requires that you keep information on hand regarding the design and the materials used in this case it would have required that they keep information regarding like the engineering drawings mm-hmm. and additional documentation that would have and helped the whole them safety maintain, system like right. that
3: interlock system they would have had it documented that this was supposed to connect into the PLC, and then that's what triggered all of the interlocks. And I have all those wiring diagrams, and that background information is is one of the key points there. Right, right. The CSB
2: concluded that deficiencies in their process knowledge and documentation significantly contributed to the incident. And actually, in 2016, they hired a different company than the original system designer to improve their process. And they developed drawings for the robotic coating arms, mm-hmm. but they didn't develop drawings for the automated gas detection alarms, exhaust fan startup, and gas shutoff system. Mm-hmm. And they didn't work to reconnect them. So just a lot of missed opportunities there to kind of keep their drawings up to date and to know right. more about their process.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So the the next element that we think would have been a big help to them is PHAs. That walks you through a very methodical look at your process and identify what potential deviations could happen, like this loss of containment, the hoses coming loose, evaluate what safeguards you have and whether those are adequate. As we mentioned, when you take credit for safeguards, you need to make sure that they are Functional and robust, like these procedures. It might have pointed out that they didn't have written procedures. It should have pointed out that the interlocks for the gas sensors needed to be inspected and tested, a whole functional test to make sure that they actually were doing what they were supposed to be doing. A key component of the PHA that many times people overlook is after the PHA. You need to inform all of the affected employees on the results of the PHA, which would give them an awareness of the risk of loss of containment scenarios, such as these hoses, and what the safeguards are, and have the operators understand what could happen and what should be going on behind the scenes to prevent that. One other piece, the CSB didn't really bring it up, but I think it somewhat important component is that... Among the tasks that you have to evaluate in a PHA, you need to look at facility siting. Now, sometimes companies will do that in a separate quantitative risk assessment, a QRA, where it's a very quantitative look. Other times in a PHA, you'll go through a checklist. But that focuses you on where do you have large inventories of hazardous material, where do you have personnel, brings to light sometimes issues where you have non-essential personnel in harm's way, and it encourages you to move those people, you know, office workers and things like that, away from the hazardous areas. In this case, their large company gym was right next door to the coatings building. They were fortunate that this explosion happened at the very beginning of the day, like four in the morning or something like that, and there weren't a lot of people in that gym. But it was a very extensive company gym, and if that incident had happened later in the day, there could have been a lot of non-essential personnel in harm's way to get hurt by this. So facility siting is a piece of that PHA element uh, that should have been looked at. So Definitely. what's
2: next? Sure. So next is operating procedures. So having written operating procedures and robust training would have ensured that that isolation valve on the storage tank was closed at the end of every day. Like we mentioned before, it just became something where it was supposed to be done at the end of each workday, and then eventually wasn't really being done consistently. They had kind of implemented their own rules for when they were going to be more diligent about it and so the csb just concluded that they could have reduced the likelihood of an incident if they had developed and effectively trained their workers on operating procedures that included a requirement to effectively isolate the propylene storage tank from the coating building at the end of each workday because of course if it were isolated there couldn't have been a
3: leak right if the hose had come loose but it was closed at the source there would have been a very minor leak of whatever happened to be in that small piece of tubing, but otherwise it would not have caused this incident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the next element that is very important here is mechanical integrity or MI. That requires you to have a maintenance program for all of your process components, such as your hoses and fittings, the gas detectors, the ventilation system, isolation valves, all these interlocks and alarms. It requires you to do functional testing of these safety systems, so not just a calibration of your gas detector, but actually functionally test that if you triggered that gas detector that the ventilation fan comes on, the isolation valves close, the alarm activates, and those types of inspections as part of an MI program would have highlighted the fact that this was not a functional interlock and it wasn't connected to the PLC to take those subsequent actions that they had intended it to do. Yep.
2: Additionally, we've got the element of management of change or MOC. And so this, of course, involves evaluating risks associated with any sort of change to your process, including changes to things just as simple as the type of hose being used. So you really need to have an MOC anytime it's not An actual replacement in kind. And what was interesting in the report is that the rubber hose was the component that ended up failing and causing the leak. And at the time, it was what's called a grade R rubber welding hose, and it's less expensive, which I thought was an interesting detail. And we'll get into that in a second. But it really was designed for acetylene and oxygen service only. And it's not recommended by the manufacturer for use with any other gases. And they were using it with propylene, of course. Now, they have a grade T hose from the manufacturer that is for propylene service because the oils in propylene and other fuel gases can actually dry rot the grade R hoses in a pretty short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So they'll form cracks and lose pliability. And also using the grade R type in propylene service, they said reduces its life and presents a safety hazard. And it definitely did. Yeah, they found that that hose had lost its flexibility, its elasticity. So that likely contributed to its detachment, which ultimately led to the incident. So I thought this was really interesting, because it's very normal to want a cost saving option. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't necessarily use a different type or grade of Mm -hmm. anything in place of what was there, because there's Probably a reason that that was right. being used, you know, just or, depending on what sort of materials are passing yeah. through your equipment. So I thought this was and really the, and that's
3: one of those where for your MOC evaluation, you need to have people knowledgeable on a wide variety of topics. And in this case, you would need to consult with somebody that understands the hoses and the application to say whether or not that change is acceptable. Right. So, right. Yeah. So yeah, definitely could yep. have helped. The next element of a good PSM program that would have helped them here is incident investigation. It requires uh, evaluation of incidents like they had in 2008 and near misses, things that could have resulted in a process safety incident. So Those investigations should be checked to find out what the root cause was and make recommendations for follow-up to prevent a reoccurrence. So things like the gas detection system not being connected into the PLC, when they had contractors point that out, those should have gone into an incident investigation system and been investigated as near misses, Which would have hopefully led them to fix that before they had a loss of containment and needed those safeguards.
2: Right. And then finally, the emergency response plan element, of course, would have been useful because it does provide awareness. In this case, it would have been for leak detection and it would have outlined what the proper response was. So, you know, they could have
3: just go back to your gym.
2: (laughs) Right. They could have had just a very specific means to communicate the hazard and ways to prevent additional personnel from entering, you know, cones, barricades, any sort of signage. And unfortunately, that just didn't seem to be in place.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So, as we said before, These folks at Watson Grinding were not required to comply with PSM or RMP. They weren't required to have this type of process safety management system in place. However, they were required under the General Duty Clause to provide a safe workplace for their employees. So a lot of times we talk to companies and they say, oh, we meet this fuel exemption or we meet this exemption for normally unoccupied remote facilities or our chemicals aren't on the covered list or we're under a threshold quantity. So we're off the hook. We don't need to worry about any of this process safety management system stuff. But that's not really the case. So even if you aren't required to comply, it's still best practice to implement a lot of these elements. It's a good idea. It helps you with reliability, operability, a lot of things for maintaining a good business, and it can hopefully prevent incidents like this that couldn't put a company out of business and kill people in the process. So after the 2020 incident, one of the citations that OSHA issued was for failure to provide effective information and training hazards of the chemicals, including propylene. And the second citation was a violation for the general duty clause. It stated that Watson grinding did not prevent explosive concentrations of propylene from accumulating inside the building. They didn't ensure that the equipment in and the coatings booths were always maintained gas tight, and they didn't ensure that the propylene manual shutoff valves were closed at the end of each workday. And as we said, there were a lot of other things that were not functional and should have been to prevent this incident. Right. So, what recommendations came out of this CSB investigation?
2: There were no recommendations made to Watson Grinding because they are no longer in business. So, oftentimes we do see a section of recommendations to the company where the incident took place. That was not the case right. here because they have since declared bankruptcy and right. they're. Right. If no they longer, were still
3: in business, right. CSB said they would have had a lot of recommendations. Exactly.
2: For them. <laughs> exactly. So the CSB did make two recommendations. They were very similar. So these were made to the Compressed Gas Association, CGA, and Matheson Trigas Inc., which was, of course, the supplier of propylene to Watson grinding. And so those recommendations were really to just urge their member companies to share information with their customers about the safety issues identified in this report and to encourage them to just go ahead and implement an effective PSM program Mm -hmm. to prevent accidents like this. So, the CSP asked that they provide them with PSM guidance from publications such as Compressed Gas Association 86, Guideline for Process Safety Management, and CCPS Guidelines for Risk-Based Process Safety. And uh, that CGA 86 document was actually developed in response to a prior CSB recommendation from a 2016 nitrous oxide trailer explosion. And that document was made available in May of 2020.
3: It was nice that the Compressed Gas Association, CGA, had taken to heart CSB's prior recommendations and developed that guideline. Unfortunately, it didn't get widely distributed enough to have a preventative impact with the Swatson grinding company. Right.
2: And then, you know, we always like to talk about what any company can learn from this incident, even if you work somewhere that doesn't handle propylene and you think, well, you know, this isn't super relevant to me. We think that there are good learning opportunities from any incident. It's the only positive thing that can come out of it. Right. Obviously, there are lots of negative impacts loss of life, and Mm -hmm. also this bankruptcy. There were lots of offsite consequences to buildings and people's homes and workplaces. But we do think that there are three main learnings that any company can learn from this incident. So why don't you go into those for us, Molly?
3: Yeah, so first off, as I said before, companies have a obligation to provide a safe workplace. And if you're handling highly hazardous materials, one of the best tools for doing that is having a robust PSM program. So look into that. Even if you meet one of the PSM exemptions or you're below a threshold quantity, go ahead and look at implementing a PSM program or at least key components of a PSM program to minimize your chances of having a catastrophic incident like this. One thing that I thought was interesting is that the threshold quantity for flammables is 10,000 pounds and Watson grinding only had 8,600 pounds on site. The CSB estimated that their release was only about 2,600 pounds and it caused this much devastation. So that's well under that 10,000 pound threshold and they still had three fatalities and damaged numerous nearby homes businesses. So just because you are under that threshold quantity doesn't mean you're totally off the hook. Go ahead and look at a PSM program. For companies handling flammable or otherwise hazardous gases, gas detection systems are really beneficial, along with associated safety systems like alarms and shutoff valves and so forth. But those need to be maintained, inspected, and tested to ensure their reliability. And then, lastly, all companies need to have an emergency response plan that adequately addresses all actions to be taken in the event of a loss of containment such as this. Make sure that all your employees are trained on the plan and any contractors that work on your site. And conduct some regular drills to make sure that everybody is following the anticipated plan and they know what to do when those alarms activate instead of everybody scrambling and saying, oh, I don't know what's going on, where do I go, and and so forth. So have a emergency response plan that's adequate. In this case, as you mentioned, should have included signals that no one else should come on site. So take those sorts of things into consideration when you're doing your emergency response plan. So I think there's a lot of takeaways for many companies in a lot of different industries from this incident report.
2: Yes, agreed. So if you have a comment about this week's episode or you've got an idea for a future episode or a question about anything process safety related, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us a voice message using the link in our episode description or just send us an email at podcast at AmplifyConsultants.com.
3: And our episode notes will have links to the CSB investigation report, so that's a good resource for additional information. Also, I'd like to uh, encourage you to listen to some of our other podcast episodes that are relevant here. As we talked about, the general duty clause covers a lot of specifics. OSHA has a general duty clause that's very general. The EPA's general duty clause has very similar wording, but they have some guidance documents elaborating what they expect for compliance with that general duty clause. And we've covered some of those details in our podcast episodes 52 and 56. In addition, if you are a company that doesn't have a PSM program or you think it's maybe not in the best shape, I encourage you to check out our three-part series on PSM Journey. The first part is for those companies that are just getting started on implementing PSM programs, and it's got some good tips on where to start and how to get going with a program. So I encourage you to check out those additional resources.
2: And we'd also like to thank the CSB again for this important work that they're doing. You know, conducting these investigations really provides a lot of industry guidance so that nobody else has to suffer similar consequences. So we do appreciate the work that they're doing. You know, we're trying to do our part to get the word out about these so that you don't necessarily have to digest a full report, although we definitely encourage you to go check it out. So you'll notice we are recording many of these incident breakdown episodes to cover the final Investigations as the CSB makes them available. So for further details on this incident and any others that the CSB has investigated, we invite you to go visit their website at csb.gov.
3: And finally, our goal at Amplify Process Safety is to save lives by partnering with companies that handle highly hazardous chemicals to create world-class process safety systems. And it's our firm belief that these systems will help prevent catastrophic incidents like fires and explosions and toxic releases. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us if we can help guide you on your process safety journey. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, be safe out there.